Hello, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Today, our guest is Adam Mastan, who is a historian of the modern Middle East and is assistant professor at Duke University. He is a junior fellow at the Society of Fellows at Harvard and taught at Oxford after getting his doctorate in history from Central European University. He's involved in many digital projects, including the bibliography of 19th century Arabic language periodicals. He is the author of many articles and a monograph. Uh, the subject of today's podcast, Arab Patriotism, Ideology and Culture of Power in Late Autumn, out 2017 from the University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. So we always begin with a biographical question. How did you come to the study of the Middle East? What's your intellectual biography, so to speak? Well, um, it's not intellectual at all. Uh, actually, I was um, a young punk, a musician. And um, in 1999, we wanted to spend the New Year's Eve in a country where the calendar is different. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but the New Year's Eve between 1999 and 2000 was uh, the subject of a global kind of uh, craze. And uh, so we went with a fake train ticket from Budapest through Europe to Morocco and celebrated the New Year's Eve in Marrakesh. And then I... Uh, took my backpack and, you know, I had a kind of uh, trip. Uh, I was hitchhiking and all kinds of things around Morocco for a month. And then I decided to study Arabic because the people were so nice, the food was very good, and so on and so forth. So it's basically a sheer coincidence that I started uh, Arabic. And I went back to Budapest um, um, where there is an old and very uh, venerable uh, department of Arabic and Semitic philology. And I went there and I said, hey, uh, here I am, and I would like to study Arabic. And then they, the professor looked at me and said that, no way. <laughs> and um, he said that, okay, there will be an entrance exam in, I don't know, in two months, and you have to know at least the basic Arabic, at least write, uh, writing and some, some basic grammar in order to get admitted and um, he said that well it's impossible so come back in one year or whenever you want but you know I was a punk and I said no I, I don't like this um, uh, so I just sat down and studied and studied and um, in two months and then did the entrance exam and I was admitted so this is how I started as actually and but that was a philology department and I didn't know at the time what Arabic philology means, and, and uh, but <laughs> I did my best, so I graduated after five years of doing a philology, Arabic philology, and this is how it started. And then it just sort of snowballed from that point onwards? Uh, in a way, yes. Already at that time, I was studying um, uh, arts theory, and I worked actually as a freelance art critic, um, especially contemporary dance and theater. And, um, and I just wanted to connect my, my interest in theater and in general performance theory and Arabic. And this is the time when I thought that, okay, perhaps the best subject field to connect these two is history. And I realized that in, in Cairo, in Egypt, there was an opera house much before there was an opera house in Budapest, in Hungary. And I became interested. And then I read, of course, Edward Said's uh, Culture and Imperialism book. 
uh, and its chapter on the Aida. And this is how it started. And it really snowballed. And I decided, okay, let's do some work on Arabic theater history. So what was the genesis of this particular monograph? As I understand it, your dissertation was on the opera itself, right? Well, my dissertation was at my dissertation at CEU, the Central European University, was a comparative study between uh, theater troops in Cairo and in Istanbul, uh, and uh, their relationships to the urban authorities, basically between the 1850s and the 1890s, um, including also the circulation of these troops, and including also the urban transformation of these cities uh, and the erection of new theater buildings and the laws which govern these new theater buildings, censorship and all, all kinds of political issues. So basically it was a study in late Ottoman cultural politics. Um, so what was the genesis of this book? Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Did you do the opera? Yes, uh, and then, uh, and then uh, well... Well, in in, uh, in uh, Europe, we have usually three years to do our dissertation. So I did it in three year, in three years. But I was very, uh, I was pretty reluctant to accept this as a final work. It was not good enough, and I didn't have time really to to engage with theory, with theories and theoretical um, um, uh, theoretical digestion of my findings. So I uh, I decided to to work more on it and um, and the problem that I faced with was that there are two ways in which usually cultural history is handled in the nineteenth century. One is that it's either uh, a precursor to na- national culture and nation state debates in especially of course in Arab nation states. And the second way is um, um, the revolutionary or radical slash colonial uh, way that uh, some cultural forms represented a revolutionary uh, stand against European colonialism. And I was, I was thinking that, well, this is not exactly what I see here in my findings, in my source material. What I saw there was the Ottoman ruling elite of Egypt. Uh, And I saw their use of new cultural production, especially Arabic theater, and also the Arab theater makers' constant petitions and letters uh, addressed to the Khedives of Egypt, to the Ottoman ruling elite, for funding. And therefore, the theoretical problem was, where can I put the Ottoman ruling elite of Egypt in the taxonomy of national versus colonial narratives? And this uh, hijacked, basically, my cultural history into a more political and social history uh, book. And this is how I basically, basically, I I wrote a new book, uh, which was then published. Uh, about um, about the way I can tackle this problem, and I'm pretty sure in a moment we'll discuss more about this. I actually I really enjoyed that about the book was that it sort of defies this um, 
genrefication or categorization because, as you mentioned, it has these elements of political history, of cultural history. Um, again, who would think to find in a book on Arab patriotism um, and Ottomanism and Arabism this chapter on, an, on the opera? Um, so I suppose, I guess, we should get into the issue of patriotism because the history of the Middle East the history of the history of the Middle East is very fraught with discussions about nationalism and Ottomanism and Arabism. And at some point in the 90s, Kennedy said, well, we don't have enough work to really go on these words. So you introduced the term patriotism into this very um, vibrant discussion. Can you define it for us with relation to nationalism? Yes. So Basically, the book also provides a theory, a new theory about uh, patriotism. Uh, and I would say that this is, um, uh, first of all, chronologically different uh, than nationalism, that it is before the rise of nationalism. And theoretically, I define it that as, um, as a type of um, uh, function uh, of uh, the use of the homeland, so it's it's a functional use of the homeland for an internal negotiation between elites and intellectuals in the empire, as opposed to nationalism, which is either an ideology or an emotion or whatever way, a movement, whatever way we define it, which strives for a sovereign nation state. So the function of that discourse is for a sovereign nation state. Patriotism, in my definition, has a different function. It's not necessarily for a nation state. It has a very different uh, function, simply. And um, and this is um, and this is where I could relate myself and my work to earlier theories of Ottoman Egypt and uh, the whole question of re-Ottomanizing the 19th century history of of Arab uh, provinces, of Arabic-speaking provinces in the Ottoman Empire, uh, which in the case of Egypt, of course, has two important names. Uh, Ehud Toledano is one, and the second is Khaled Fahmi. And uh, basically, what I did is just, I just continued their work and logically, Continue that okay. If 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 uh, we consider the Ottoman context of Egypt as an Ottoman province, then what are the consequences concerning the theory and practice of nationness in an Ottoman context? That is, what if if we take a snapshot of time instead of looking at the nineteenth century from a nation from a 20th century nation state idea, we take a snapshot of the late 19th century as a as an empire, uh, as the Ottoman Empire from from Cairo, and try to look at the patriotic idea, the national idea, or nationness, to use this concept, um, uh, uh, at that very moment. Um, um, and uh, yeah, this is how it it came. So one question I have to you, and this is a very basic question, it's one I get asked by students when I um, assist and teach, is what is an Ottoman? And how, sort of how does Ottoman fit into your framework for understanding Arab identity politics? 
Yeah, so actually this is a very good question uh, because there are many, many ways to define what, what is Ottoman. <clears throat> and there are many scholars who use Ottoman in their work like Ottoman Damascus, Ottoman Syria, or Ottoman Palestine, or Ottoman Egypt, or Ottoman Cairo, uh, or Ottoman Beirut. So they are using these labels without actually engaging with the question what Ottoman means. They usually think in terms of time that this is still under Ottoman sovereignty, uh, these locations. But this is not actually what is the important thing here. The important, the important thing is that, first of all, there is a ruling elite which is of Turkic origins mostly, very mixed, very uh, Muslim cosmopolitan ruling elite uh, with some Christians in it, usually Greeks and Armenians. Uh, they are often either in the military or administrative officials, and they are the ones who, uh, who are in the machinery of the Ottoman administration in various provinces. So uh, the Ottoman means, first of all, an administrative structure. Second, it means a financial relationship to the Ottoman center. So it is forgotten, but uh, basically until the 20th century, even under British occupation, even Egypt uh, paid a yearly tribute to Istanbul. Uh, uh, financial, it's not only the tribute uh, or the taxes, but also the Ottoman high elite investments in the various provinces, the various types of vox uh, uh, properties whose income uh, had all kinds of uh, networks and all kinds of ways to be distributed uh, from Istanbul or, 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 or in Istanbul. So there, in, there is that type of... Uh, of uh, financial meaning of being of, of having an Ottoman uh, uh, context, and finally there is a cultural or intellectual one, which is obviously the uh, the linguistic part that is an Ottoman uh, Turkish as an imperial language in the various provinces and its relationship to Arabic. It's a very strange relationship to Arabic, right? <laughs> Ottoman Arabic is, a, is an interesting uh, subversion of, uh, of, of Ottoman Turkish. And obviously the Ottoman Turkish uh, language reformers in the 19th century used Arabic, at least in, until the second half of the 19th century, extensively to find new concepts. It's a very creative relationship between the two languages. Uh, and uh, there is the the imperial culture network that is the intellectuals were actually free to move within the empire, so it was not a big deal to move from Damascus to Beirut or from Beirut to Alexandria and back. Uh, if you were an Ottoman subject, you could do it without any question, and of course you could go to Istanbul and do your trade or uh, connect to uh, your friends. This um, so 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 the Ottoman context means uh, a lot of things, uh, and uh, it has also a visual, an aesthetic side. The Ottoman modernism in the nineteenth century, um, and of course, it it is also a memory, a potential pool of memory in the nineteenth century, a reinvention, a potential pool for reinvention 
of a common Ottoman past or actually an Ottoman enemy for uh, later on for Arabs and other peoples. That's a brilliant way to put it. So getting more into this Ottoman context of it, um, what effect did uh, the change of status to Egypt under the Ottomans have uh, during the 1860s? How does that play out in your book? Yeah, so the 1860s is is famous for, I mean, for the general public, of course, the most famous and most well-known thing is the Suez Canal opening ceremony in 1869, uh, November. This is uh, the, the, perhaps the most important event in uh, in the 19th century in Egypt, which is usually registers, registered in the public because of the acceleration of world trade, the achievement of French technology, and so on and so forth. However, for um, uh, the Egyptian, uh, for the Egyptians and the Egyptian Ottoman ruling elite, the biggest legal achievement or the biggest legal change was uh, during 1866 and 1867, two firmans, one which regulated uh, uh, the order of succession within the local Ottoman ruling family from seniority to primogenitor. And the second one was uh, the legal making of what is called the Hedivate, uh, that is a, a very special status uh, given to Egypt as a province uh, from the Sultan. These were very expensive legal acts. Uh, the Egyptian governor uh, achieved these firmans through bribes and through all kinds of maneuvers. Um, and arguably, they changed uh, also the relationship of um, the Egyptians to their governor. Uh, so as I prove, I try to prove, um, from then on, from 18, 1866, there is an increasing um, will to compromise with Egyptians and involve them into the local government by Ismail Pasha, who achieved this uh, firman. So everything changes in the 1860s. It's a very packed time. It's a, it's a very important global decade in Egypt. Absolutely. And in the region as well, and it's all interlaced. Um, oh, I apologize. Um, so I one thing I appreciated about the book is the fact that you pay attention to nuances of language, um, in particular with regards to leadership titles. Um, and I was wondering about this in relation to intellectuals, because as you mentioned, intellectuals had... Um, high mobility. And I think we often assume that because intellectual moves, an idea moves with them, but it does take a particular context to transplant an idea. Uh, so no, 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 no. I, I would, I would reframe your question if I may. <laughs> so it's not, it's not necessary about uh, ideas moving, but there is a conceptual difficulty here for, for someone in the early 19th century um, and this is, this relates to how you understand the power structure in which you are. Where, who, who is the governor of Egypt to you as an Egyptian, for instance, and as an Egyptian sheikh or an intellectual at the time? How, with which words you can address power? How can you talk to him? In what way? 
And uh, here titles are important because you can see exactly when the perception of uh, the ruler changes from really from an Ottoman notable, an imperial administrator to a kind of or to to a to a kind of um, local localized monarch. This is what you meant. Oh yes. So I think one thing that, again really one thing I did want to ask before we move any further is what terms are being thrown around um, because we've talked about the idea of the nation but we've also talked about the Ottoman Empire so what are these terms exactly and how are they being used and sort of um, is there any muddling of terms during the 1860s and the 1870s of course of course there is a muddling of terms but uh, um, I have to say so so the clearest and most simplest way to frame this is of course through the idea of Watan. Right. Um, so I translate Watan until the 1890s as patriotism in whatever context it is, usually, because, or as patria as homeland and Wataniya as patriotism. Um, it, of course, Watan is an ancient idea uh, in Arabic, it means uh, homeland, but it can be also a type of imagined um, uh, homeland. Um, even perhaps in Sufi imagination, once it meant heaven, and so on and so forth. So there's a huge lyrical uh, literature, uh, which uh, which is using the idea of Watan, which is very well known to everyone. And something changes in the in the 19th century, and this change is usually described as it changes into a national idea. That is, Watan becomes suddenly the national homeland, meaning a type of state-like ideology. Mm -hmm. And I I say that, well, this concept was more fluid in the 19th century in various ways from Ottoman Syrian provinces to Egypt. It It meant, it could mean it, the content of this word could mean lots of things. A city, the empire itself, or the Naivali in Egypt, and so on and so forth. But what was important in all, ca- in all the cases, that uh, the function of the world was more or less similar. That is, it was a kind of uh, key term to achieve a compromise between elites. Now, I think that's something we should emphasize is that you don't cast patriotism as simply proto-nationalism, but it describes the political state that individuals or the government in Egypt found itself in um, versus being an, an aspirant nationalism, similar to what people were seeing in Europe at the time, which is not to say that people, contemporary, uh, people um, individuals, intellectuals writing in that period did not recognize that what was happening beyond their borders was nationalism. So again, this is something I think the book Sort of carries out well, there is a a danger here, of course, and the danger is um, what about sovereignty? Um, Yeah, and the the danger is, of course, if if we frame this as as a non-state discourse about uh, the patria, then um, then what type of concepts of sovereignty are there, and then why suddenly? By the late 19th century, we can register actually a change in which actually there is uh, a very clear 
European way of treating uh, the idea of the nation that is for a nation for an independent nation state, at least in Egypt. Certainly later on, of course, also in in the Syrian territories. Um, and um, well, that's a huge question. Perhaps we shouldn't go into it. But I, I operate with a plural with a plural concept of sovereignties at this time. So I I, I make a distinction between external and and domestic sovereignty at this way in this time in the Arab lands. So I think it's about time we return to the question of the opera because the public sphere has such a big role in this. I mean, we've already talked about definitions when we were talking about how people describe themselves, but um, you have this, this, this notion of, of the fact that uh, these concepts play out in a performative way. Um, and the opera has quite a big part in it. You call this section of the book your little mic, your, your micro history of the opera. And again, as you mentioned, this is part of your dissertation. So I thought we, we should discuss it. So, I was wondering about the dynamics of power across the opera um, itself, and also how it functions. If you give us an introduction to the opera itself, yes. So, um, so my book is also a, um, a study in political aesthetics, uh, in a way. So this is, um, and I would say that the the caddyate, the caddyate tried to represent itself in a number of ways. It had an Arabic representation in which the press and Arabic theater and um, uh, monuments and some reinvented Muslim rituals um, uh, function. And there was a way in which they wanted to represent the caddyate to Europeans and to modern um, uh, modernist Ottomans and also to us, to posterity. And that was where the opera had a function, the opera building itself. And uh, why I wrote a microhistory of this is because I was immensely interested in, in, the, in the administrative production of this space and the way it was built and uh, who, who, who were there and how actually how the Arabic intellect, how the Arab intellectuals reacted to it um, and uh, how the local governor, uh, Ismail Pasha, use it as a representative space. So, because it gives us also an idea about, um, about um, uh, cultural colonization, cultural colonization, if we want. So in a way, my book is very much a response to Edward Said uh, and, and his argument about, um, about the idea as a colonial opera. Uh, and I, I go into really into micro details about showing how this infrastructure came in, came about, and who were the ones who, who were served by this representation um, and who decided about what, who is the agent behind bringing opera troops to, to Egypt, for instance. Yeah, are, are these the European administrators or someone else? Is this the work of a civilizational argument, an internalized civilizational argument, or there are other considerations here? Is this only a relationship between Western Europe and Egypt? Or <clears throat> actually, is Egypt part of a larger Ottoman network of theaters? Is it a kind of Eastern Mediterranean spatial representation of modernity at least according to the elite imagination. 
So all these questions are investigated in the in the opera chapter as well. Yes. Right. I mean, when you said micro detail, it is really very detailed when you go into these. I know it's I mean, painful. It's, it's, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's not. I was about to say you could literally pull it out of the book and present it to a class studying um, art in the Middle East. And it just it works that tightly as its own unit and still discuss larger things. So I was wondering how this contrasted to the idea of the press because and, and printing presses in general. Um, because that's another sort of leg of your argument. And, and you ground yourself very much in these 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 publication histories and, and press history. Yeah, so um, so yeah, so basically, this was one of my most important sources: early Arabic uh, journals and also the Ottoman press, and of course Ita- the Italian press of the time and the French press of the time. Uh, and basically, these four languages I I, I use mostly um, to to reconstruct um, the. Uh, uh, the perceptions of the time, and also basically the actual the actual construction histories of the theater buildings and the circulation of the troops. Um, and um, meanwhile, I realized that um, the press is an interesting site, as perhaps you yourself <laughs> know it. That uh, in the in the regard that it's also a location of power, uh, and. Uh, um, there are various arguments whose voice we can hear through the early Arabic press. Is this um, uh, the Pasha speaking? Is this um, um, uh, the, the actually the journalist speaking or whose interest uh, works? And then I, I made also a, a deep research in, in that respect. And um, obviously, <clears throat> all journals had to, at the time, uh, had to operate with a permission. Um, and they were strictly supervised uh, by the Ottoman Khedivial administration in the 1860s and 1870s, um, although less later on. And many of the printing presses were financially dependent on the government as well. Um, so, uh, I started to consider the press as a representation. Whose representation it is is a question, but uh, one can see, um, I mean, I tried to 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 argue that at least uh, one important journal, Wadi Anil, which was one of the most, one of the earliest um, cultural magazines, if one can say this, uh, and which was usually considered to be a kind of... Um, um, uh, propaganda means of the Khedive. Actually, it was not really uh, a propaganda means of Ismail Pasha, uh, but it embodies an independent intellectual enterprise, although it's obvious, it, it's in an obvious relationship with the government, very likely it's a financial relationship as well. They cleverly established a large business uh, and they evaded government orders and commissions. So, um, so this journal is important in uh, in the study because it also shows um, uh, a loyalist, certainly a loyalist perception of the new cultural infrastructure in Cairo and in general in in Egypt, um, and um, and it was forgotten so far. It's also a Muslim. These are Muslim journalists uh, who are doing this. Um, um, so I I hope that it will contribute to several debates 
also about uh, Islamic modernism, if we may say. Yes, I was just about to ask that, actually, because I think well, right now, I mean, in addition to Islamic modernism, the study of the idea of the Muslim world and of uh, the idea of the caliphate is very in vogue. We've sort of had two or three studies published in the last year that get into this, uh, very celebrated. So I was, was curious about the role of Islam throughout the entire book, because it does it does thread through it here and there. It pops up and when relevant. Um, yeah, so one is interesting that... Uh, so my book, uh, perhaps you mentioned or I mentioned, I don't know. So it finishes in the in the eighteen nineties. So I don't go really later than the eighteen nineties. A little in some aspects, but in general, my book stops in the eighteen nineties. So I would say that this is the moment when, um, uh, when basically the patriotic idea uh, stops functioning as an for an internal compromise and becomes really a, an anti-colonial nation nationalism, and also when something changes in Islam. And so before this moment, before the 1890s, the people I deal with, the sheikhs um, or intellectuals or simply uh, notables, statesmen who are Muslims, of course, but this is not, this is not their first identification. Um, is a confident. They are. They are very confident. Uh, the, uh, for instance, the Vadiani journalists. They are very confident that uh, the Western civilization is, 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 is something which with which they can engage, with, um, with without any cultural superiority uh, issue. They, they are confident that Islam is, is strong, that it is, it is, um, it is, it, it can be modern. It is not a question if whether Islam can be modern or not. Of course it is. It is, it can be modern. And there are many things that, uh, from Europeans and European science and culture, uh, uh the Ottomans can learn. Um, but it is not an inferior relationship. Uh, I mean, it's not, um, how to say, it is not, um, not necessarily um, um, uh, that type of um, uh, conception when, when um, sorry, how to express it well, when you have to negotiate in order to gain your place yet. Um, is it understandable? <laughs> Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, it's, it is a, it's, so what I see is a confident engagement with um, uh, with Westerners. Uh, obviously, it is also because of be, it's before the British occupation. Obviously, it's clear to everyone that European powers militarily are superior. This is not a question. But the question is, is whether um, it's it's before or actually what we can see through it is the making of what my, my colleague later will is uh, called the, the idea of the Muslim world as something inferior, um, although he also means a different, uh, different question on this. It's the political solidarity, right? Um, so, yes, this is also everywhere. And I mean, I also deal a little bit with the reinvention of Islamic um, rituals and Islamic texts, so Turas, 
uh, Turas before there was Turas in a way, uh, a new Canaan, uh, which comes through the printing press, and, and in which we can see some influence of European Orientalist preferences as well. It's a very interesting yeah. interaction between um, Egyptian intellectuals and European Orientalists at the time. Um, so, so Islam uh, plays an important role in several ways in the book. No, absolutely. I mean, this is just a fun little tidbit, but I found recently um, in the archives here at Princeton University the letters of Goldzier and Mark Leith to, Hidaz, um, to the editor of Hidan, Tradizid Dan, in Arabic. And you can clearly see that they're having an exchange and that Tradizid Dan sees himself completely as an equal to them, and so do they. And it's, the exchange of ideas is, is couched in a very interesting language, to put it uh, very simply. Of course. I mean, even before Al-Hilal, I mean, Godzihar was in constant connection to Egyptian librarians and colleagues uh, since the 18, early 1870s. No, and the, the influence of manuscripts, I mean, you see in all of these books that come out, not only out of Cairo, but out of... Um, out of uh, Beirut in the 1850s, you see at the bottom of the of the, uh, the, the of each book um, taken from such and such manuscript, and it's normally from a European library, like Leiden, or it's it's absolutely astonishing just the level of. I mean, again, people don't presume this level of interconnectivity. So again, to because we sort of jumped forward a little bit in the chronological telling of your book, so to speak. What happens when the colonial powers take over? You've alluded to this, and it's this. This you said directly you know, they're militarily superior, but how do these Ottoman roots transform? Because that is the contribution you make to the field is the fact that these are Ottoman roots to, uh, to, to uh, the idea of Arabism and the idea of being Arab. Yeah, so, so obviously the British occupation brings uh, uh, a, new, a new era in Egypt. Uh, and a new, a new moment in the Ottoman world. I mean, that is super important. On the other hand, um, actually, the, for instance, the loss of Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1878 is the f- first real uh, shock to Ottoman elites that uh, a territory which is almost purely Muslim is now under uh, the uh, 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 power. Interestingly, I don't know if Algeria, the loss of Algeria was as shocking in 1830 to the French as the loss of Bosnia-Herzegovina to the the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, So after that, of course, comes Tunis and then Egypt. So in a way, the British occupation of Egypt is is in a series that is is almost... how to say it's 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 not so the the British occupation which is not the biggest shock uh, perhaps at the time for Egyptians it is but for the Ottoman elites in a way they they could even anticipate it but what is important here is that uh, that for instance just let's talk about something concrete and that is how long we can talk about Ottoman Cairo and what would this mean Ottoman Cairo under British occupation. Uh, so I think uh, uh, basically we can talk about Ottoman Cairo until the 1870s in terms of um, a taste uh, in which, of course, we have the opera house, but there are still palaces built in Ottoman style. Um, there are still Ottoman 
trained engineers circulating in the Eastern Mediterranean. But after the British occupation from the 1880s, especially from the late 1880s, Cairo as a city is no more an Ottoman location in its aesthetics because of real estate development. That's that's a new there's a new era. There is a new a new uh, uh, a new visuality of the city. On the other hand, of course, it is still ruled by the Khedib, as well known. The British maintain the Khedib dynasty. They maintain um, certain Ottoman ties. There is an Ottoman uh, high commissioner in Egypt, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think perhaps the main contribution of my book to existing scholarship is that I don't take uh, the British occupation of Egypt as an immediate complete break with the past. But I show that um, there is a transitionary period, at least five years, during which the British are not sure if they will stay. There's a negotiation about the evacuation of the army. There's an international pressure also on the British. And uh, the most important reason is that the occupation is very expensive. Um, so um, there is a, around a five-year period in which still in the 1880s, Egypt is in a transitory moment. And this moment is also the moment when Egyptians have to refine, redefine their relationship to their rulers. I mean, not the, not the British, but the Khedivah dynasty. As it is well known, the Orabi revolution in 1882 was not only against the European controllers of Egyptian economy, but uh, first of and foremost against Khedif uh, Taufik, the son of Ismail Pasha. And the Egyptian army rejected Khedif Taufik as a governor, as the Ottoman governor, and in fact uh, requested a new Khedif from Istanbul at one point. So what, uh, how, how can you continue uh, to live in a state which, when uh, the British army occupies Egypt, Taufik is, is uh, reinstalled, and um, how can you understand this situation? And I bring in um, what I learned from European examples, the idea of retroactive justice. So the question is, what happens after a failed revolution? We usually deal with revolutions which are successful, although, <laughs> as it is well known, uh, in the Arab world, revolutions are usually not successful. So, uh, and also in actually Eastern Europe, revolutions are usually failed uh, because it is suppressed or so on and so forth. So what happens after a failed revolution? There is a recreation of, uh, of the memory about power. There's a recreation of, of administrative changes. Uh, uh, so there's a remaking of the of the state, uh, and there is a remaking of representation of power, and this remaking of representation of power occurs also in um, on the stage, on uh, on, on it's in, on, 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 on in Arabic theater, uh, and basically the dynasty reshapes itself as. Um, as um, 
as a type of new modern Ottoman sovereign monarch, monarchical dynasty in, in Egypt, if I may say so. No, I think that's quite evident in the 20th century and how it represents itself in the 20th century and how it's remembered in the histories that we have. Um, so before I let you go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're currently working on. What are you planning to work on? Yeah, so I I translated a manuscript um, recently into English, uh, which is an interesting manuscript. Um, uh, and one part of it is especially interesting because it is about it's a debate with um, French Egyptologists about uh, the age of the world. The manuscript is written by a Muslim sheikh, court poet of Khadivi Ismail. So this is also a kind of little, and I wrote a little study, which um, also discovers and reconstructs the life world of this sheikh. He was also actually part of one of the earliest um, printing enterprises in Egypt. Um, so it might be an interesting uh, addition to our knowledge on of, of printing history as well, but also to history of science and history of industrialization, because the sheikh is, of course, obsessed with steam machines and loves machines at the time. Um, but he is not someone who learned French or was ever exposed to any Western European country, but he, he had a traditional uh, Sufi education and he has a traditional other mind and tools. So one can see basically an epistemological transition in this manuscript, an epistemological question. Uh, um, and the question is, just to briefly tell it, is if the new French archaeologists are right concerning the dynasties, ancient Egyptian dynasties. And according to their calculations, the age of the world is much longer than it was previously. Then uh, what about the traditional Muslim sciences and the traditional Muslim understanding of the age of the world, which is long, which is shorter? Especially uh, the Sheikh concerns about the period of uh, between the fall of Adam and the flood. Too far. Anyway, so it's a little fun, fun book that I, I just finished. And the next project is, I moved to the 20th century. It's a comparative um, historical anthropology of um, Arab monarchies in the 1920s, basically, 1910s, 1920s. Um, and I deal with something I call monarchism in Arabic. Oh, that sounds like... I mean, both of them sound like very worthwhile projects, especially the one on uh, monarchism, because I think oftentimes we sort of shunt the kings to the side. But uh, I want to congratulate you on your book and thank you for the interview. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Indeed.